here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we've been going through the Exodus, and we've been talking about the great deliverances of God. And the great deliverances of God are complex, because sometimes they involve really bad things happening, even to really nice people. So we've talked about the parting of the Red Sea and the escape from Egypt. And we've also talked about the birth of Moses and the deliverance of Moses. But there was also another deliverance in between. Really, the plagues of Egypt were a deliverance. You have to remember God's intention and intentionality in it all. You've got a people, an innocent people, under the yoke of bondage in slavery. Their labor was not their own. Their lives were not their own. Their property was not their own. Their children were not their own. And in this state of slavery and bondage, God decided to set his people free. It says that from heaven he heard their voices crying out to him for justice. And he decided to deliver. So he sends Moses, but first he trains Moses in Pharaoh's own house. So he learns statecraft. He probably had to study mathematics. I know you guys don't like to do that, but he had probably had to learn all the languages and he learned about how to deal with people. And then he gets in a fight with an Egyptian and he kills him and he has to run away. And for 40 years, he does what? Takes care of sheep out in the wilderness. I don't know what God's fascination with sheep is, but God seems to think it's just a great preparation for ministry, right? So he's out there and he probably thinks, my career's done. All I'm going to do for the rest of my life is like take care of sheep, right? And then one day he hears a call, a call in the wilderness of Moses. And he comes and he finds a burning bush. Now what we should think about this is not like a small bush. It wasn't like a, you know, a cute little bush. It was a huge bush, more like a tree. And the flame was pouring off it, but it was not consumed. Now, you know what happens with fire. Trees and bushes do not last long with fire. So it says specifically, although the fire was there and the tree was there, the tree was not consumed by the flame. And Moses himself knew there was something weird going on today in the wilderness. So he's there. And he hears the voice tell him, Moses, take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. Now, Moses knew a thing or two about religion. He was a prophet. He had been raised understanding these things. How well he knew the Lord his God is open to debate from the text. It doesn't say a lot about his previous theological education. But at this point, he knew that he was meeting the Lord. And so they have a conversation. And Moses, does Moses say, you know, I'm the right guy for the job? I just think this is a great opportunity to show all my skills and go straighten things out with Pharaoh. He does what most of us do, right? He objects to the Lord. I'm not ready for this. I'm not even good at talking to people. My speech is messed up. I know other people that are better for this. But God called him and commissioned him and gave him what he needed in order to complete the the job God had for him, which was to go back to Egypt someplace he probably never wanted to go. Now, you probably remember this about the story, and this proves that Moses knew a certain amount about the Hebrew religion, the Hebrew people, and the standards thereof. When he's going back to Egypt, the angel of the Lord is sent, and the angel of the Lord is going to take Moses' life. says he was standing there waiting to kill him, and his wife intercedes because she knows exactly what has to be done. Now, is his wife a Hebrew? She was a Midianite. 
right? We know all about her father, all about her family. But when a man marries a woman, she becomes Hebrew if he's Hebrew. Now, this goes all the way back to the beginning when the original three guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't Hebrew. Not at first, right? Well, Hebrew is really just a descendant of Heber, right? So there were all kinds of Hebrews. Not all of them were God's chosen people. But Abraham was set apart by God, and God told him, I will give you this sign, and it's to be given to every person in your house, and every child you have, every male child is to be circumcised on the eighth day, right? And he's to be circumcised on the eighth day, and this is to happen to give them the sign of being one of my people. Now, none of us here believe in, like, transubstantiation, Right? Protestants are very slow with magic and hocus-pocus, right? We're a little leery of everything. We also don't believe that just because they cut the foreskin of the child, that made them a Christian child believing in the Messiah, right? Even today in our Presbyterian tradition, we don't believe the water magically transforms the child. And as a matter of fact, as they grow up, we get manifest evidence of the fact (laughs) that they may not be completely sanctified by the Holy Ghost, right? It comes, right? But... God gave a visible external sign of being one of God's visible external people of God. So Ahab had the sign. All of the Hebrews had to have the sign. Even the worst guys in the Bible had the sign. Did they have the faith? Not necessarily, but they had the sign. All we have for you here, we're the visible church, right? Whether or not you're part of the invisible church, whether or not you have faith in Christ is a different issue. They're related and overlapping, but they're not identical. They're distinguishable, and they were in his day too. Remember, even all of Abraham's servants were circumcised. Everybody that came into his house was circumcised. But from then on, every child on the eighth day, every male child, what? Circumcised. And it went on that way for thousands of years. You have to remember that from the Hebrew and Jewish perspective, sacraments were for children, not adults. Do you remember the like two or three times that adults got circumcised in the Bible? It's always a weird story because it's a weird thing because nobody sat around thinking circumcision is for adults. And frankly, most of the guys, you know, wouldn't want to (laughs) participate. Just saying, right? When they do, it's usually because something very weird is happening. If a man joined the Hebrews and he was from another race or people, he had to get circumcised, right? He had to go through a lot of things to become Jewish, so to speak, because he wasn't from the blood and he wasn't born from the family. Who was the first one that was renamed Israel? Do you remember? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob wrestled the angel. And because he wrestled the angel for the blessing of God, God disjointed his hips so that he'd have to limp for the rest of his life. But at the same time, he renamed him. From now on, you are Israel. And your 12 sons will be the 12 tribes. And whoever blesses them, I will bless. And whoever curses them, I will curse. Right? And from then on, they were a nation. And he blessed them, and they became a mighty nation. This is the same people that we're talking about that are now... 430 years later, reduced to servitude and slavery under the heavy yoke of Pharaoh. So we come with that to chapter 12 of the Bible. Now, chapter 12 is the Passover chapter. We've been through 10 tribes. And of course, I'm going to test you now on if you remember the 10 plagues. Can we do it? It's only one page back. If you cheat, I won't... (laughs) Okay, first, first plague, what was it? 
Everybody remembers the first one, Charlton Heston. Ten Commandments. The waters were turned to blood. Now, this, the, the significance of this is easy to overlook because it's just kind of gross, so we pass it by. But it does say in the text, it started to stink. So it wasn't just red water. He turned the waters to blood. They had no fresh water. They turned on the tap or the shower and blood came out. Is that gross enough for you? When God wants to get your attention, he has ways of doing so, right? Second, frogs. It's Mississippi. Nobody minds a frog now and then. But imagine frogs piled up as high as your knees everywhere you go, in your house, in your bathroom, everywhere. Frogs, frogs, frogs. And when they die, they're not pleasant either. God's offending them with overwhelming, disgusting creatures and stink. Third play, gnats. If you see them out in the field and you walk around the, the cloud, not so bad, right? But if you're running in the field and you suck a bunch in, you really get the point about gnats, right? Every one of you has swallowed your own little handful of gnats during any life worth living, right? But imagine the billions and billions, the swarms in your eyes and on your skin and in your home and you can't get rid of them. The fourth play. What's worse than gnats? Flies. You know, it's Mississippi. You've got your fly water. You try to keep them out, but they're in your house. They're on your sandwich. You know, it's usually the guys that get the job of kill those. Kill those flies. <laughs> but the billions, the swarm that comes upon you that bites and stings and rests on your food and lays its eggs. You guys know how flies eat, right? They don't eat like normal stuff. They're super gross. They throw up on your food to digest it a little first, and then they suck it up. Ugh. It's a good plague. If you're going to plague somebody, flies is not a bad idea. It's very plaguey. <clears throat> now, the fifth plague is where things start to get even more serious. All of the livestock die. Their livestock. You're sitting there, you're an Egyptian. You rule over the Hebrews who are your slaves. All your livestock dies, theirs are fine. Right? It increases their animosity toward the people of God. Sixth plague, boils. Now we've seen pictures of this from the ancient diseases, right, that we don't really have in our society, but can be brought back on a moment's notice. Boils all over the body, filled with stuff. Just boils in general are not pleasant, but as a plague... It's almost overwhelming. Seventh plague, hail. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord your God, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve you. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my people out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would, not, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into the safe shelter for every man and beast that's in the field that is not brought home will die when it falls on them. 
Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left them in the field. Next plague. Famous one. Locusts. Swarms of locusts such as have never been seen on the earth from that time until now. Now we have actually seen things like this in contemporary culture. You can look it up on YouTube and see the swarms of locusts come upon a land and they come by their billions of billions. And what do they eat? Everything. They eat everything. They suck everything up. And every blade of grass and every leaf on every tree was gone. They consumed everything. It says, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. Now pay attention to this verse. It's very important in theology. It comes up again in Romans chapter 9 when God starts to explain how he does what he does and why he does what he does when he does it, right? And here... Notice the word, it says, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Last week, we looked a little at the fact that Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. But when Pharaoh was finally about done, and he was like, I got to let these people go because this is just too much for me, right? Then it says, no, too late. God hardened his heart so that he would not let the people go. And he's already explained why. Pharaoh was the most powerful man on earth. Pharaoh was the most powerful man there had ever been on the earth at that time. He was glorious. He was wonderful. Hey, most of us here would have had a poster of him on our wall, right? We'd be like, well, you know, he's not Hebrew, but he's Pharaoh. He's pretty cool. He's got a chariot. He's got money. He was probably good looking, right? Probably gave a great speech out at the whatever they gave speeches at. at the... You guys remember that Memphis is named after the official slave state of Egypt, right? Memphis is named after one of the most evil cities that had ever existed in the history of the world, which has only recently been refound, and it has been reduced to rubble and sand. You can still go visit the pyramids, right? You can still go. You can't go visit Memphis. God has blotted it out of existence, except for one place that chose to call their city by that wonderful name. Weird, little bit, right? Still, just the don't get mad at me. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. It's a little weird though. So then the ninth plague is darkness, a darkness so dark that people could not look and see their hand in front of their face. Even if they lit a fire or lit a light, it would not give forth the visible spectrum, a deep, deep darkness. Now look at the way that these plagues and things like this represent certain things. What do you think darkness represents? The spiritual darkness of the mind and soul, right? Once we turn away from God, it's only dark. There's no light left. And in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague. And this is the worst one. Now, we talked a little because we had to talk about it because Scripture says not only terrible things, it says, Teach your children these things. I'm kind of overwhelmed by it. I had never in my entire life thought about all the necessary and good reasons to censor the Bible in certain places until I had kids, right? Even now, we change the language, but it says specifically, you shall teach your children about these great deliverances of God. So he says it about 10 different times to make sure that we don't do what our temptation will be to do, which is to skip entire portions of the Bible that make us deeply uncomfortable, right? Now, they had done what to the children of Israel for an entire generation? They had taken and they had slain the male children as they were born. And Moses was delivered 
by that, by the great providence of God, as he took Moses and had him loved affectionately by Pharaoh's daughter so that he was raised in Pharaoh's house. And so the plague is that God is going to take the firstborn of every Egyptian. He's going to send the angel of the Lord with his great and mighty sword, and he's going to go through every house and find the firstborn and take them back. You know, the Bible says we are not to take vengeance, right? We're not to be vengeful people. God is very careful to let us know that we're all sinners and we're all fallen and we're all guilty and he's giving us grace and mercy. So he always tells us, you better not be vengeful because you've got a lot to account for yourself, right? God does not have a lot to account for, okay? It doesn't say there will be no vengeance. It says you don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So he decides what's appropriate, right? So he also gives them this, which is where we get to in chapter 12, the Passover. The Passover. This is the deliverance. And it comes with signs and types and shadows tied up in such a way as that the people themselves could understand the deep and rich deliverance that they're receiving. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. So he's even setting for them a calendar that we still follow today within reason. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Twilight is sundown. Then thou shalt take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts of the lintels of the house in which they shall eat it. Now I know this imagery is not lost on you. A sacrificial lamb, perfect and without blemish, killed at a certain time, and the blood of it put on the doorposts of the house, right? They shall eat the flesh that night. Now you have to remember the sacrifices that were given in Israel were not just given and consumed except for a specific sacrifice of sin. Most of them you gave your animal to the priest and they slew it for you to recompense God and to provoke God in regard to your well-being, but then you received the meat back to come and cook it normally and eat it with your family. You participated in the sacrificial feast. You didn't just give the sacrificial feast. And he's saying the same thing here. So that is not actually unusual. <coughs> Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn because it's holy. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened. Now, look at the way that he says they have to eat it. Even the clothes that they're wearing are representing a certain thing. Is this a teaching moment or just a lifeless action for them to do? Is this just ritual or is he trying to instill in them something deep and rich that they can carry on through life? You eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Old language for fast. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, 
and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now notice that phrase. It's very important to really understanding. And if we were going through each plague individually, which is a very worthy study, each one of these plagues really represents, when we get down into the warp and woof of what it says about it, one of the gods of Egypt that was put before the Lord and caused them and provoked the Lord to this kind of action. He's not just at war with Pharaoh. He's at war with all of Pharaoh's gods. You have to remember that the Bible recognizes that lots of people recognize lots of gods. It's just a book that says, really, there's only one. There's only one. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Pass over. And no plague will befall or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. That means you'll go to church. No work shall be done on these days. But whatever one needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats leaven, what is leavened, the person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. And I know that's nice language, cut off from the person, but they're not talking about excommunication. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now you notice what we usually do for the Lord's Supper, right? What is this? This is what they mean by unleavened bread. Because leaven causes it to rise. It's not actually a cracker. It's exactly the same bread that they use for the Passover. And there's a reason why, by tradition, Christians usually use this, right? We'll talk about it a little later. Then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintels of the doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, he has promised you shall keep his service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Wouldn't that be kind of normal? They got normal days, right? And all of a sudden, dad's doing this weird thing with a goat and he's putting on his clothes. We all have to sit there in the evening. We have to eat the whole lamb. But it says it's supposed to, it's designed to provoke your children to ask, what does this mean, right? When your children come to you and ask you, what does this mean? Here's what you shall say. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped 
Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now we're not going to go into the plague though. Maybe we'll bring it up next week, but we don't have enough time. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Now you all know about the triumphal entry and you all know about Jesus coming in and you even know about him always talking about the Passover. But eventually they actually celebrated the Passover in verse 17 of chapter 26. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, didn't we just learn about it? They had been practicing this for about 2,000 years at the time Jesus comes in. Saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, I, this comes, these things happen a few times with cults and different things where somebody just knows about Jesus and they have some kind of special insight and he doesn't explain it, but there's a guy who knows and there's a guy who knows what he's gonna do and he knows that his time's at hand and he knows that he's gotta prepare Passover. I always just think that's weird, but it's good to know, right? Not one of the disciples, just a guy with a house, right? But he must throw a mean Passover, that's all I can tell you. Okay, and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, notice they're doing everything by the book when it was evening. He reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after one another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So therein, the Lord makes a transition from the old covenant Passover to the new covenant Passover, from the old supper to the new supper. He reduces it to two elements, but just because it's streamlined doesn't mean it doesn't run fast, right? So we're going to 1 Corinthians 11 now, which we read almost every time we do the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> so from verse 17 of chapter 11, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This is the Apostle Paul rebuking them for doing the Lord's Supper badly and poorly. But notice the things that he rebukes them for because they're very important. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order to show those that are genuine and recognized. When you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one goes ahead of the other and has his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so the way that people have treated the Lord's Supper 
is an expression of the way that they have treated the people. The identification with and the observation of the body of people is very important. He's actually mocking them. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? I mean, if you're going to be getting drunk, really, is this the place for that? You might think it's a strange rebuke. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, here's the place where we get to one of these things about why we do have the children wait until they're of a sufficient mind and understanding to be able to tell us that they understand the faith and understand what these symbols mean and understand what they're doing before they're allowed to participate, right? I grew up in a church, in a church and tradition that would let me have the Lord's Supper anytime they want, but wouldn't let me be baptized until I was 14, which is a little bit different, right? But the scriptures, the reason that we don't let children take it until they come to a place of understanding is because it seems to specifically imply that these things can only be rightly participated in with a certain level of understanding. It says you have to examine yourselves. So the child has to be at a place where they can meaningfully examine themselves, right? It also says they have to be able to identify the body and blood of the Lord. So there's a certain level of theological understanding which is presumed in the text. There's a very strong movement today even toward what's sometimes called infant communion where they give the Lord's Supper even to babies, right? There's a verse in here that's incredibly disturbing and we're going to go ahead and read it before we take the supper, but I want us all to at least hear it and know that it's there. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, we're, we're Protestants. We don't believe in magic, right? We're not superstitious. Most of us don't believe in ghosts. Uh, I do. But I'm spooky like that. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we don't believe and we don't like to think that a simple eating of bread and juice can have a consequence upon our well-being and bodies in this way but the Lord tells us be careful and this is not an exodus this is in 1 Corinthians this is the New Testament church right so there are these things that we do first examine yourself now this doesn't mean something that a lot of you have been taught that God wants to crush you into some shape of sheepish fear before you receive these things. If you're thinking to yourself, I have to be perfect enough to participate in this meal, I promise you, if you think you're perfect enough, you're way off base. If you ever think to yourself, you know, this week I've been pretty good, I can probably take this meal. You're completely wrongheaded in your understanding. The right understanding is recognizing the body and the blood, not your own righteousness, right? So recognizing the body and the blood is recognizing, I need this meal. I need Christ. I need to be fed. I'm a sinner. He's a savior. We were made for each other, right? 
So recognizing is not recognizing that you're good enough. It's recognizing that you're not. But also looking into your own heart and mind and if there's anything that's keeping you from Christ, dealing with those things now. Right? Discerning the body and the blood and examining yourself to prepare yourself to receive this meal, which he said, this is my body. This is my blood. Now we're going to a little more next week what he means by that. Because he obviously doesn't mean we're going to be chewing on bones and gristle. But is there a spiritual receiving? The scriptures call this a participation. He doesn't call it a mere remembrance. Just because he says that in doing this you'll remember him doesn't mean that it's reducible to a mere function of the intellect. Rationalism would say all we're really doing is remembering because all that really matters is the functions of the mind. There is a spiritual mystery here that I do not claim to understand. There's a spiritual mystery here that you can accept and participate in without understanding it. Right? But that the Lord's Supper is reducible to just a few symbols to remember what Jesus did for us, I think undoes the entire supper. This is a spiritual participation. Now, one of the things that was said by one of the great theologians is actually, this meal actually happens in heaven, not on earth. So that when we take these things, we're caught up to heaven with Christ, participating in him as he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. To me, that sounds pretty cool, but I don't know, right? What I know is that when I pray, it's a spiritual act, not a merely intellectual act. And when I sing the songs to God, it is a spiritual act, not a merely intellectual act. How could the Lord's Supper be a merely intellectual and not a spiritual event? So when you taste the bread on your tongue, taste Christ spiritually. It's meant to be a symbol of that, right? And when you swallow the, the juice and it goes down your esophagus and into your stomach, you're, you're being filled with the Spirit of God that he's giving to feed and sustain your soul. It's an amazing thing, right? You don't really have to understand it. You kind of just have to go with it, right? How could we understand these things in any kind of an infallible or, or, or exclusive sense? So, gentlemen, if you come forward. Lord our God and Father, this bread we pray that you would set aside to yourself from a common to a sacred use as a representation of your body broken for us. Amen.
received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat. God, we also pray that you would set these aside from a common to a sacred use as the representation of your blood shed for us. Amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take, drink all of it. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, we thank you for this great blessing, this participation in you, Lord God, guided by your spirit, dictated in holy writ, so that we can know you, and in knowing you, Lord God, know peace. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing a song. 133, Rock of Ages. God look up and receive his blessing. Do not look down. This is not a prayer. It is a proclamation on behalf of Christ. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.